restaurant. And they were like, that's Indian food, dude. That's Indian food, not British food. And I was like, right, that's it. Hi Ben, how you doing? I'm alright, thank you. How are you? I'm not bad, thank you. All good, right, yeah. What we're we talking good. about? What we're we talking about today? I'm not really that interested in talking <laughs> shit with you. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about Britain's racism problem, how far we've come, and how far we have to go. And we have a very special guest, Sundar Katwala of uh, British Future. British Future, an independent think tank, non-partisan think tank, and registered charity, engaging people's hopes and fears about integration and immigration, identity and race. Did you remember all of that? No, it's in front of me. <laughs> for a change, I've actually <laughs> I've bungled so many guest introductions that I thought I might actually think about how I was going to do, introduce Sunder today. Sunder, welcome. Good evening. Glad to have you here, Sunder. Thank you. Great to be here. This was probably to, we could have discussed today, but uh, as I said to you, I was wanted to focus on Britain's racism problem, as discussed by you in this month's Prospect magazine, uh, where you discuss the progress we've made and how far we have to go, and um, some of your personal perspectives uh, as a Irish, British, Indian, and mixed race person, um, having exp- your own experience of uh, racism and and. Um, to quote you, it's that uh, racism has been driven into the shadows, but it remains lurking, liable to be reactivated by the opportunity for anonymous abuse that platforms like Twitter allow too easily. So, could you elaborate on that? Do you think that um, do we think that uh, they've been driven into the shadows and now they've been given a platform, or do we think that things have got a little bit worse? Have we gone backwards a little bit? I mean, I, I'm fundamentally an optimist about race and identity. Um, and that's, that's primarily been my lived experience of, you know, the last four decades. I'm, I'm in my mid-late 40s um, in this country, growing up in the, you know, the 1980s. Um, we have come a long way in, in my lifetime. And, you know, I was an absolutely football-mad kid when I was seven. I had a three-year campaign to get taken to a, to a game. I had a season ticket at Everton, in sort of 1986 when I was 12. And, you know, there was a level of overt racism that I was introduced to by being a football-mad 12-year-old that, that my kids' generation will never hear that. And so, and so fundamentally, that roots my sense that, that, that things changed. And I felt things change in terms of that legitimacy of overt racism that we dealt with in the mid-late 80s, the early 90s. In terms of opportunities in British society, if you were Asian or black, that felt like it was opening up. I left university in 1995. That was probably, I was quite lucky, that's probably around the time when it felt like it was opening up, the late 90s, the early 21st century. So that's what I felt. Now we're having this public debate where race is much more salient. We've had the Black Lives Matter anti-racism movement, and that's a challenge in some ways to my optimistic view that we've come a long way, but I'm sure we've got more to do. And it's interesting, it's made me reflect on having these conversations, quite hard actually to persuade people born in this century, at the start of this century, about that story of the progress that you know, I felt we made. Um, you know, my generation being the sort of first British-born generation, my parents came from India and Ireland, we have more status and standing in this society than the first generation of Commonwealth migrants. You would hear people from that generation say things around, you know, I don't know, the Enoch Powell debate obviously was very formative for a lot of people. My dad came here the year that speech was made in 1968. So people would say things like, you always keep a bag packed just in case. And if you're born in Britain, I, I just, that didn't, 
that didn't resonate with me. I didn't feel that, like, you know, somebody might tell you to go back. I mean, you'd have to sort of split me in half and send me to Dublin and Bombay anyway, so it'd be a tricky <laughs> thing to organise. So I think, you know, my generation had a sense of standing and status here. You know, if you were talking to a sort of racist when you were 15 about where you're from and they, you know, call you the P word or something, you'd be like, you know, learn your own history. You don't, you, yeah, I thought I had status over people who are being racist. So that was that was my sort of long-term experience. I think I think there are good reasons for the next generation to want more than that. I think, you know, if I'm talking to 20-year-olds, I, you know, I don't want to be saying you're lucky that the NF aren't chasing you around a football ground threatening to beat yeah. you up. That's not something mm. to feel lucky about, that you don't face sort of imminent threat of violence. What, what this generation has, I think, as a birthright claim and expectation is what every prime minister, every newspaper, every television channel will tell them. They've got equal opportunity in British society. And that might be a bit more true, um, but it's not yet true. And so their feeling is that is that, you know, the progress we've made doesn't match the expectations that they have. Someone definitely disagrees yeah. with you <laughs> in the background. Um, <laughs> no, it's interesting. I think you touched upon that um, a little bit in the, in the article you wrote about um, younger generation being a bit more impatient um, and about uh, the level of progress, especially, the, I guess, this different lived experience. Um uh, and w- when they're seeing things like people objecting to um, the Black Lives Matter um, uh, and uh, people, uh, footballers taking the knee, it, it does it does seem like a bit of a difficult situation. But it's kind of different from, like you said in your article, where the, it, you're on the terraces and hearing Everton fans boasting that Everton is white. Uh, and, you know, people, as you say, asking wh- where you come from or where you really come from and, or you should go back where you came from and, Things like that less happening less frequently. So I mean, it's clear that progress has has been made, but it's I can understand why younger people w- would not really take that into account so much when they're wondering why on earth people are getting into such a tiz about players taking the knee in support uh, in, against racism. Yeah, um, and what, one thing I was trying to do in this piece as well was actually say you can actually empathise, especially this turns out to be very generational. I think. It is also different across groups. I think the black experience has been different from the Asian experience sometimes. I think that I think the Muslim South Asian experience has been different from the Indian experience sometimes. So there have been lots of different changes. I think, you know, if you go to university, if you don't go to university, there's you know more integration in both groups across racial lines, but those are different kinds of experience, different kinds of conversation. But yeah, I was interested in trying to empathize both sides of this. Because if you're if you're my in-laws out in Essex, um, uh, Billericay, they're very keen on on the vote to leave um, and, you know, very committed to that and most people they know are. And you think about this issue about race and anti-racism, I think their perspective, the perspective of their generation is that is that the country changed quite a lot and they went with those changes quite a lot. That, you know, they that that generation has changed its understanding of race and racism, you know, the jokes you tell, the jokes you don't tell people, you know, they might moan about political correctness, but actually they've worked out you don't say certain types of things. Um, attitudes to other issues, homosexuality, absolutely transformed over that. So, so they, when you have the generational divide. Yes, they've, it, they've come a long way and, it, you know, countries change quite fast. And now they feel a younger generation is coming up and saying, like, you know, you know, when's it going to be fair? Nothing's ever fair. And they, they're not quite sure what that's about. But if you're young black and British born and then when you make those points people say to you um, it's better than Italy you know that's turning you into a sort of mystery mm. shopper that you might have decided to live in Italy what's <laughs> it you know if you're worried about racism on the bus or do I get the same number of interviews for my CV then saying you know if you tried if you tried somewhere else you're quite lucky isn't very good and also it's better than it was for your parents and grandparents is incredibly mm. irrelevant but like you know there isn't the same visceral experience. And we, we do find this, that old black and Asian people have a lived experience of the progress that young people don't, you know, are impatient about because they feel that the first generation kept its head down, didn't make its point, you know, put up with more than they should and hoped it would be better for their kids. 
and their kids are thinking, why not? Why not equality now? Why not equality yesterday? It's actually a value you want to have. But but both of those perspectives, actually, that the change in our societal race has been pretty fast. You know, gone from one in twenty to one in six of the population being not white since the you know, early nineties, and that the change on races and racism and equal opportunities every time you have these big inquiries and debates and investigations seems pretty slow. Because, you know, if you're um, young and black and talking to the police, the police don't, you know, look like you, think like you mm. have that. Those points could both be true at the same time. And that's quite it's quite interesting. I think we can get stuck on that kind of, you know, are you for or against diversity points? So that, that intergenerational conversation is getting harder to have, I think. And it was the perception of young people who went on those marches that they were cross-ethnic marches there are a lot of young white people on them but they were they were essentially cross-ethnic marches of the under 30s and so people were then saying i wonder why it's us and, you know older people might not have been there because they're worried about covid they might be supporting it online they might have been a bit skeptical about the change in language the change in discourse as that's quite that is something that people know actually from their conversations in their own families across generations that there is this big divide really in perceptions of race yeah it's uh it's interesting isn't it so you've obviously tried to you're trying to like present this like reflection of reality as you see it in terms of like how race is viewed in this country and it is obviously it's multi-layered and it is complex um it's not binary um and but that's obviously part of the modern culture has become obviously more binary and more like you know, well, Brexit obviously showed it up, didn't it, with with Remain versus Leave and that that whole. And obviously, we've got the left and the right seem to be moving further away from each other mm. and generally kind of mimicking U.S. culture, mm. I guess, as well. Um, and that obviously, I think, pollutes the debate as well. And you've, you've talked a bit about that before, haven't you? About about how we should be careful about Imparting. taking on and mimicking the U.S politics on this subject yeah this this isn't america and you know there are things there are things in america that um that i think people respond to and are inspired by i think the civil rights movement is you know is an inspiring story about change and race very american story i think barack obama becoming the president was i was i was very struck by that you didn't know what america felt about that but the the depth of the polarization in america um, between the Republicans and Democrats just goes deeper, I think, by geography, the cities, the rural areas, because faith plays a different role in America. I think red America and blue America are quite a long way away from each other and are two sort of, you know, different ideas of America. And we feel like we've been having that debate in that form, sort of post-Brexit. But I just think when we talk to people, it's just a lot shallower in Britain. Mm-hmm. It was quite a big argument about Brexit specifically that has come into politics the political divide is more generational now it's more about education you've got some of the same features but you haven't got the same debt so I mean I I think I think our social conservatives in Britain across the population they're pretty liberal on some of these issues of the role of women gay rights fundamental norms about racism the left is you know pushing on as it always does to go to go further so i think it's i think it's not as deep but it's also it's just a different story it's a different experience so britain's experience is of being an imperial power that sort of is a bit has a lot of amnesia about the empire it had isn't quite sure how it ended up with it because it wasn't planning to let it go dissolved it quite um quite quietly in a way of second world war the empire into the commonwealth and then has this new migration post-1948, which is a product of your history, and is experiencing that for the for the first time. But that British story is very different, I think, from, say, the Black American story um, of, of slavery, of segregation, of the South. So I think almost everyone we talk to in Britain on all sides of this debate, they agree that Britain isn't America because the sort of there's so many guns in America. And so the, the level of violence and fear and threat, say, in the debate about policing is on a different level. What young people who are very supportive of Black Lives Matter will also say is, of course, it's right. It's not the same. It's subtler. It's different. I don't want to hear that much about how it's not like America, though, because obviously if it's not like America just means, you know, we haven't got our problems here. But Black Britain and Black America, ethnic minority Britain, these are these are different things. I mean, Black Britain is a is a three percent group. Of the population, not a thirteen percent group, and it, you know, and 
half more than half black people in this country live in London, where they're a large part of the population quite well known to the group. So there's a lot of people who are quite familiar, young people in London, quite familiar with black people. Um, the big, large parts of the country where it's kind of a distant thing you see on the news. And so you might then believe stories about what black people think of, I don't know, statues of Winston Churchill, because you're out there in Cornwall or the Northeast or something. You're not in a in a in a diverse area. And so you get this mm. polarized view, I think, that that you know doesn't really work if you if you if you know people. So I think part of this polarization is that is that the younger groups in the more diverse areas have got a lot of social contact with each other across ethnic groups and that, and that in other areas it's a sort of visibility and a distance um so so that's you know the generational polarization is it's a product of the progress we've made but it but it's sharpening this debate one thing about the different experience we've had and, and also we touched upon there about um remembering how that London and, and is a very different from much of the rest of the country. And even even where I'm from, parts of Yorkshire, um, we've had um, you know famous had immigration in the '60s for people working in the mills and things like that. But where I'm from uh, in East Yorkshire, didn't have anything like the same levels of immigration. And when when we previously discussed this in our episode about immigration in Hull, um, didn't really have its first wave of immigration until 2003. Um, there was no significant um, immigration population at all. I think we had a very small Chinese population. Um, and other than that, it was about 1990. It was one of the most least diverse um, parts of the country. And I remember very um, vividly, um, 2003, I had waves of immigration from, because of the, the wars from uh, the, that whole region. Uh, and obviously um, with um, Poland and... Czech Republic and you know some surrounding areas around them. It, it was the f- many people in that in, in this area it was their first experience of, uh, and it was very quick and, and rapidly changed small areas of of the country. So I mean that's very very recent. Or it feels very recent to me anyway. Um, relatively recent. So the the, the experience um, differs in in different parts of the country, and and you know very different from from America. We really do need to be discussing things as they are and. And um, it's very much, um, as you said in the article, we have our own experience. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me, and you said um, in the in the piece that we need to, we've got we need to have a, a homegrown agenda um, that is meaningful to our specific context of this country. You know, we 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 need to sort of get away from the uh, Americanization of the, the debate and stop oversimplifying it. Really. Um, there's something about the the strength of the the American storytelling, though, isn't there? And obviously, like the infiltration of their culture into ours. Yeah, um, and we're all, you know, I, I would say I know a lot more about the U.S. Uh, history of you know um, <laughs> of you know slavery and those kinds of things. Definitely, I know more about it than than the U.K. history. Um, and I think that because the stories are yeah that they, they, they come across stronger for whatever reason, and ours we don't have. Yeah, and there's all the films and literature that that you you can barely avoid. I mean, Mm. I think if you learn about our own our own history, you have to go out and learn about it, which which I have. But you you don't really have to actively do it so much with the US because it's everywhere, and their cultural output through media is so huge. So, and then again on social media as well, and that that drives um, so much of it. Um, Like and Sunday, you said about um, people in in less diverse areas gaining misguided beliefs or prejudices about certain uh, groups of people probably from the media and increasingly through social media um which can also warp the debate of perception of how racist country britain britain is and then you have the the backlash um with people trying to minimize it um i've mean, seen today you've tweeted about some of the treatment you've had on on twitter and and the the platform's mishandling of that and i think you know if you're if you're seeing a lot of abuse on on Twitter and Facebook and whatnot, you you are going to begin to sort of that's going to that's going to affect your whole perception of racism in the in the country. Maybe you see it as as, as worse. Do you think it um, do you think it reflects um, something real in our society, or do you think it, that sort of social media microcosm uh, warps our perception of it, makes it makes us think it's worse than it is? 
I, I, I think the latter very strongly. I mean, it's a sort of, it's a very standard trope to say, don't blame social media, blame society. It would only happen on uh, social media because it's in society. Of course, on one level, that's trivially true. In this particular example, I think it's the inverse of the truth. I think we have got a problem of social media and a failure of social media, which is now distorting both, I mean, it's both changing the actual experience of people. This has certainly happened to me personally. Um, and then distorting the perception. And so it's robbing us actually of a perception of real social changes that we've made because social media is very much there, upfront and personal. And, you know, got this big macro change across the generations, which is very, very profound, a big shift in racism. You're getting a lot of racism. And then being told, um, you know, but there's a, there's a lot more non-racists there not abusing you at the moment, even though 20 of them are abusing yeah. you. That's kind of, yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's the, the sort of macro and micro spin. So I think that's incredibly important. I, mean, I, I definitely personally receive much, much more racism, much, much more often um, over the last three years than I did 20 or 30 years ago in a much more mm. racist society. And this is specifically an experience of people who spend a lot of time on social media, which I, which I do. But also, and importantly, it's an experience of anybody who's from an ethnic minority background with a public profile, especially if they ever speak about race. And so mm. actually one of the big positive shifts in my lifetime is that our our political, public life, social life institutions are much more ethnically diverse than they were. I mean, I cast a vote in the 1992 general election. It was about eight days after my 18th birthday. There were six non-white MPs. And I don't, I don't think the BBC noticed. I don't think they sat up during election night and said, why is only 1% of the parliament not white? It just wasn't It wasn't there. Well, that, that's now 65. So you see this big generational shift. You see the number of women from ethnic minority backgrounds in, in public life in the last 10 years. No one was expecting that to happen. You definitely have this sense about, like, you know, who had voice and who had power. So this generation born here in the 70s and 80s, you know, has come through in public life. But um, so they are a product of the change. And you would have said, you know, will these places elect MPs, the Tories have found that you can run ethnic minority candidates in the home counties in Yorkshire in very non-diverse areas and that people will vote by party as they do. So that's been a really interesting finding. So we've got a normalisation of ethnic diversity across the political spectrum, which has basically happened in Britain and Canada and barely anywhere else. You know, so in America, you have a very multi-ethnic America represented by the Democrats and the Republicans will have a couple of black people somewhere. And in most of Europe, this hasn't happened yet. And yet the experience of those people is that they now receive much more racial abuse because they're in public life. And that is almost entirely, I mean, email reduced the distance for the Green uh, Inc. Brigade. But, you know, the shrinking number of racist bigots in our society are exactly one click away from any mm. ethnic minority person, any time, whether it's Diane Abbott or David Lammy or it's Saji Javid or somebody on the other side, any time someone says something you don't like, you can be right there in a second. You know, you don't need mm. the green ink and the stamp. Now, that is a big reason why, uh, you know, young people I've spoken to who have the strongest anti-racism norms you will probably find in any society have no sense of progress because if you if you engage with the Black Lives Matter anti-racism protests and in our research about a third of people from ethnic minority backgrounds said they supported those protests actively online, you will have had racist responses to them as well as mm. critical responses that weren't racist as well as supportive responses. And so you have this perception that racism is always on all the time. And if we don't sort out that space, so I feel we made a lot of progress, you know, specifically at Goodison Park in Everton, sometime between 1993 and 1995, the culture changed. We made that progress over time in playgrounds, on school buses, on the streets. And I think bystanders know what to do. You know, they might do it well or badly. But if you saw someone having a rant on the bus, I think there's a good chance people would stand in. Got that going on all the time on social media and the platforms have failed and bystanders don't know what to do because, you know, Ben, Matt, if you wanted to try and, you know, police the whole of Twitter, you know, once you start, you're really in the middle of it. So people don't know what to do. And and so we've got this real sense of this heightened, quite hateful atmosphere that that it doesn't take very many people to run sort of 30 sock puppets each, you know, to, mm. to, to really give a visibility and a profile to the most toxic forms of racism. 
Yeah. Um, to move on, I just want to move on from from the more optimistic uh, side to the, discuss the. There is, you know, the, in the article you mentioned uh, the actual evidence of systematic uh, racism, or um, and we referenced studies that um, showed that people with ethnic names like uh, you said Khalid or Kaisha, uh, Kalisha, sorry, um, they would have to send up to sixty percent more job applications um, to get a positive response compared to somebody with called. Kevin or Catherine. So, there are... so, sorry, Ben. Ben, were you just saying that that was a positive conversation we were just having? No, it didn't no, sound but... very pos- no, no, positive no, no, no. to me. <laughs> positive in the sense that we were discussing. Um... So about the failure of the of social networks to yeah, yeah, yeah. Progress. Progress. Not the sense of progress. That's not being reflected. Not being reflected Sense of progress <laughs> and the idea that that the social media warps our perceptions of levels of racism. But then there is actual evidence that shows, with you know. That we still got some way to go in, in in how in how there's an element of systematic racism. And when I read that, I wondered if these names are coming across people and they're having a sort of. There must be people. I mean, maybe I'm being too optimistic here, but I get a sense that people who are rejecting these applications, some of them maybe not even realizing what they're doing, perhaps, or um, what is it, unconscious bias, unconscious Conscious racism, bias. perhaps. Um, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're actively being risked, and probably, probably there is some of that in, in amongst that. But sixty percent more applications is such a high level, uh, high number. I wonder if you think there might be. I mean, you've got to be careful because we've got it's conjecture to a certain point. But um, I just wondered if there might be some un- unconscious bias there, uh, and um, how we can deal with these, these systematic uh, uh, disparities that are still present. I think this is the most important question. And uh, my, my hunch is it's mostly unconscious bias now. Um, when this is happening in, I don't know, law firms and FTSE 100 companies and so on. But, you know, there might be people running small businesses whose view is, you know, I'd never rent to somebody of that colour. I'd never give someone a job. But actually, this is happening in corporations um, where people would feel that there's equal opportunity, there isn't the diversity there should be, but maybe people don't apply or, you know, they'd have different stories about it. And then when the academics go and run these studies where they just change the name and keep it. Mm. And so it's, it's that sort of blink test when you're sorting the CVs and so on, or when you're thinking and, you know, people say, you know, we want good cultural fit in this company or something, you know, that it's mostly unconscious bias. Now, we're a bit stuck now on the what to do about this. This is important because actually you can go most of the way rightwards across the political spectrum, most of the way leftwards across the political spectrum. When you look at this piece of evidence, almost everybody says, look, that's a thing to sort out. It reminds us of those bits of film where, you know, a black guy and a white guy try and rent the room and it's real to one person, it's real to another. So nobody wants this to be the case. We want it to root out. But if it's unconscious bias, what do we do? And it's, it's also now the case that people will say, look, unconscious bias training, don't know anything about it. We don't know it works. I'm of that camp. I don't think there's any evidence. There isn't much evidence for it or against it, actually, because people do this kind of training and they don't evaluate it because they just want to say everyone's been on training. But everyone going on training doesn't seem to actually fix the point that the mm. person with the slightly hard to pronounce name doesn't seem to get the call. So it's, it's affinity bias. It's people like us, people like me, biases that most people have. You know, you have a mixed group of people sifting these CVs. You know, it might be mixed race people like me still making these unconscious calls about how good is that person, how good is this person. So um, it's really important, I think, to get a grip on it and work out how we're going to do it. Um, my, my kind of proposal on this is actually, if you were really committed, say you were the University Admissions System or the Law Society or the Graduate Milk Round or so on, if you were really committed to um, getting rid of it, you would actually implement these kinds of blind trials that the academics do in your actual real process in real time yeah. and get the feedback. Now, the reason not to do that is, you know, if you lift up the stone, it might be harder than you than you thought. But the only reason not to do it is that you don't want to is you don't want to know. Because what these academic studies prove to us is that hypothetical people are getting discriminated against. And obviously real people are getting discriminated against because the hypothetical people are applying for real jobs. And so mm. I think I think we should be really looking really quite wonkily at what things what things makes a difference. How much difference it make if you take all the CVs off or have a mixed group of people doing it or don't let the algorithm do the sorting or whatever it is that different people are doing that is giving us these results. But it's interesting to me. I mean I, I saw David Cameron make the case 
at the Conservative Party conference when he was saying, you know, my party needs to be more diverse, do this. He said, look, I'm the prime minister. We all want to live in a fair Britain. But do you know this is the case? And I thought he had the one example where where it's undeniable if we change the names, we get different results that we've all agreed it's got something to do. Whereas, if, you know, you're in a debate about stop and search and so on. We can have all sorts of debates now about like what's fair, what's not fair, what's the behaviour. So we've got the one piece of evidence, really, that there's something systemic going on in the labour market. And I think you should say to every single sector, show us year by year, show us how you're going to get rid of it. Um, because that's what, that's what we need to see. So um, in a way, I take some hope from this particular issue because I think we can have a consensus saying everyone agrees on equal opportunities we haven't got it let's find a solution and we're not in this kind of cultural debate which is are you saying Britain's entirely racist are you saying Britain's entirely brilliant it's got nothing to apologize well obviously the truth is it's a grey area on all of these issues and we find that people who can't agree in a way on the discourse of race can actually agree on these practical challenges, you know, the absolute hatred on social media, the unfairness in the job market, you know, more contacts, better in schools than less contact. We get quite practical and actually you start to get a consensus on race most of the time in most places. You do have an optimistic turn to health. It's quite refreshing, really, when you, when like yourself, I spend a lot of t- too much time on Twitter. Uh, and you mentioned earlier about you can't really dive into every debate and defend and attack every every racist comment you see. You know, I used to often get tempted. Maybe when I'm getting uh, when I'm uh, procrastinating and <laughs> and want to just dive into every debate and start attacking every idiot comment that I see. You can't you can't put out every fire though, can you? Can't this is just a futile battle. Um, I do agree. With you. I think I think the progress we've made is something to be optimistic about and. Um, when we're discussing the things that we've still got to do, um, they're important things, but um, I think some things like um, unconscious bias in recruitment and things like that, uh, these are still big problems, but they're not the same level of problems that you faced when you were when you were younger. And um, uh, even Matt and I had said that we'd be, growing up in 80s and early 90s, that we, are, we ourselves even know, don't really think ourselves as, um, as mixed race or anything, we still face face some kind of level of abuse for having dark hair even and then my school well in my school um which was all all pale white people and um i get a bit of a tan in the summer and i've got some mixed heritage from my mother's side uh, it was egyptian and i was called all sorts and packy and uh wog and it's said I, I once told a therapist about this and they said they can't can't understand it so you're barely even olive skinned is that and but i still spent a lifetime trying to keep out of the sun and straightening my hair and stuff like that to keep out any any level of uh to not get a tan and not not have curly hair um and that, the fact that that seems ludicrous now makes makes me feel a level of of, of change because um, I feel a bit daft even saying it now because I don't want to say it to somebody who's a ethnic minority yes we're the same you and I we've had the same struggle because <laughs> it's kind of ludicrous um, um, I don't even take, take mixed race in uh, you know demographic boxes I mean I probably could when I think about it but um, uh, yeah it's, it's I had this experience with my kids they had to decide what census box to tick this time I ticked mixed race for all of them 10 years ago because they were all younger and then they're having this debate and they, they've now you know they've got to form identities because the census form is on the computer and it would be more mm. ambiguous if they if they didn't you know if they didn't have to so it's quite it's quite it's quite interesting I mean it's one of the reasons actually that demographic change will be slower than than people think because you can say it'll be, you know, majority minority in 2050, but there's a very, very large mixed group in that. And the second and third generation mixed race group will will often will often identify as white. Sometimes I always find that very funny as well, the whole concept yeah. of a majority minority. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to just and, group you know, together all you know, the so minorities. You've got, you know, you've got Seb Coe and, you know, uh, people like Seb Coe, people like Ryan Giggs who are mixed race, you know, in the way you are. And, and you know, depending on the, on the culture, you, you're less of a... It's more of a bridging identity now than it is than it is inherently a minority identity. But there obviously there are privileges of being the kind of person with mixed ethnic heritage who can choose, and the kind of person with mixed or minority ethnic heritage who can't 
can't choose. But that's that's I think that's an interesting feature. And in Britain, the intermarriage rates are just much, much, much higher than in America, particularly for the black group. So the black Caribbean group isn't really a group in the same way anymore. And so that is a big reason, which I think people haven't really noticed, this, these cultural appropriation debates and these essentially slightly segregationist ideas that progressive America, especially progressive white America, has ended up onto. Because I think part of this argument about white privilege and anti-racism, it's, it's actually saying it's really increasing the distance between ethnic groups. Because it's saying we'll never, ever really be able to understand the experience of black people. And so we should be much more empathetic from you because you're completely so different from us that we'll never have an empathy into it. It's quite it's quite an odd strategy for me that, that, you know, I want to increase the level of identification of the mixed ethnic group, you know, in its shared national identity, its shared citizenship. So this this idea of sort of this this narrative of white allyship and white privilege which is actually very strongly about white liberals. It's not really very much about ethnic minorities. It's, it's, quite, um, it's quite an odd one, I think, as a way to engender more, more sympathy. So, uh, you know, I think, I think there are pros and cons, and, you know, people try on different arguments. But th- this one does seem to me to be getting that wrong, that you actually want to tell people what they share, and you're actually getting the most left liberal white group to sort of say, we'll never really understand these incredibly different people. I do think that's a problem as well. It's like when you have um, Twitter outrage or just trending things when someone said something, put their foot in the mouth, think it happened today with, I mean, I didn't see it, but it's happened with, today with Eamon Holmes <laughs> had said to her, a black co-host that um, her hair reminded him of an alpaca's hair, <laughs> which which was a stupid thing to say, but as I'm stupid enough to do, I sometimes click on things that are trending so that I can irritate myself. And then you just, as ever, it's just lots and lots of liberal white people going, oh my God, I'm so outraged by this. You should, I'm our, outraged on her behalf. Our, our kind of liberal tribe, I think, hasn't really clocked the reputational damage it does to itself by overreacting to trivia. And it's a problem mm. for me, because, you know, we're talking about the absolute hateful stuff on social media that I want to deal with, but people obviously are less inclined to believe that. It's worst of all worlds, really, if you're sort of, you know, deleting episodes of Faulty Towers over here because somebody might be offended, which they won't be, but actually you've got, you've given neo-Nazis the run of Facebook and Twitter. That is that is the worst of all worlds. And actually, I mean, we do find that, you know, basically people think that we're oversensitive, to trivia and that we're letting really strong stuff go so there's an inherent common sense there but if you pick if you take the bait every time and have these trivial arguments i think you very much corrode it's a boy who cried wolf problem you very much corrode the sense that there's something important that you're that you're here to do and i do i do think my side of the argument has like not quite understood like how that sounds mm. yeah that's a really interesting point um, should we? Should we? Um, should we stop there for a moment? Yeah. Sunday, have you ever seen a um a video of a Australian news report where a a guy Australian fellow is selling a house and he's put in an advert in a New York newspaper that says a newly renovated three bedroom house um painted new carpet right through walking distance from the city close to all schools and shops uh, no Asians thank you <laughs> and a reporter and, confronts oh, him yes, I have seen the reporter confronts him <laughs> saying, well, why? he says why do you want any you don't want any Asians and he said oh well they're lazy useless they don't even do anything and goes on in that vein and it Eventually, they realise it's his accent, and he's actually said no agents. No, no agents. No agents. No agents. No agents. Pretty funny clip. Okay. <laughs> I was just thinking, it just brought to my mind when we were talking about unconscious bias and the names earlier. Yeah. So, an easy way into this that I've found, which is just about still relevant, is how's your. How have you found the whole pandemic lockdown experience? Was it a nightmare? Did you get through it all right? I had an interesting. I one. was quite. <laughs> 
I was quite, I was quite in favour of it, you know, for that first, you know, was that six weeks, eight weeks? It felt quite, felt quite positive, didn't it? You thought it was going to be three months long, and you had your lists of books you were going to read and so on. And um, I mean, it's it's been okay actually. And I think um, there was a point, there was a point that's like worried me. And you know, last. Um, last summer last christmas you know we thought we were coming out of it like long before we ever did and then you're like oh no it can't end now you know psychologically in the back of your mind i haven't you know i haven't utilized lockdown i'm not ready for the end of it uh, or whatever so i think you know at different times it's been a bit of a slog and the years have melted in but i think being in and around the house and family and actually you know my kids as whatever have been quite good i think it was much better when they got back to school and there was still like mm, lockdown going on. That was much yeah. better. But we had the, uh, you know, I mean, our our team adapted well in terms of work. We've had like three picnics in the year and a half, and that's that's the amount of meeting up that we've that we've done. So it's all been online. But that's so, you know, I think obviously some people have had terrible times. Other people have had to keep going on working. So I think I think you can't really you can't really complain um, about it, even though you've been quite Ooh, sort of locked up. <laughs> when there was. Um, <laughs> Was it, that bit where that bit where I mean I'm a sport addict. That bit when there was no actual sport oh, yeah. for a while, like crowdless sport, it isn't real, but like you can still watch it and you know organize your week around. That's gonna be great it. for the new um, season, so isn't on. it? New season for crowds back. Yeah. So, but that that bit where I mean I was watching the Belarusian league when you were thinking ethically they should not be playing it is obviously wrong, but I now I'm sporting <laughs> the teams because that's literally the only thing that's on. So again, that again you didn't I didn't use the. Uh, like you know the chance of there being no sport on to you know read all of Tolstoy or anything like that like you meant to yeah, but, um, yeah but. I didn't either <laughs> I, um, I've just only really just started feeling a sense in the last um, month or so of things really feeling normal obviously they lifted the lockdown but I've also started to lift my own mental lockdown have you managed to get away doing a trip or anything at all or, you know a couple of days away or anything like that we're doing we're doing little staycation kind of visits here and there. We're in Whitstall Cup days. So we were we were at Legoland uh, all week ago. And again, like you know, again there's some variations. But we were you know it's the first time my nine year old had been to um, Legoland, and that was you know that was uh, you know we were there we were there overnight for like one night. So we're in there for two days. So um, you know, and again like that's you know that's like we're doing a sort of staycation and Legoland is the highlight of it, but it's still, yeah, it's a very big thing uh, compared to being sort of cooped up. Yeah, and, that's, that's, I just went away for um, four days and it, I've come back feeling very refreshed too. Anyway, we? we only went to around the like Newcastle region, <laughs> just only two hours up the road, but it felt very different for me. Um, and we're, were we st- doing camping? We stayed we in a hotel for a couple of nights and then against ah. my will, I was so taking camping. camping. We did, yeah, we went camping for two, two nights mm. It, my wife organised it in a flurry because she knew that I never wanted to go camping because I'm a bit of a snob about it and I don't want to sleep in a tent. But I was forced to once the kids got excited about it. I was a bit dreading it because I said, <laughs> I said to her, I, I said to her, if we're going to go, then do not go cheapskate on a tent because I'm not sleeping in a tiny little tent. And it felt like she'd gone overboard because she bought like this seven metre long one, which was my biggest fear because I'm so having to build something like that is scary to me because I'm a very impractical man. Uh, and I don't really understand these things. I can't. I can't. I just. Can't, if you put me with a tent on my own to build, it just would. It would never happen. I'd have, I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so it's quite funny when we got there to build it. We put it out flat, and I was just sort of hanging around like a teenager, sort of just like not really knowing what to do, waiting for my directions. And she's reading the instructions, <laughs> and I can see across the way, uh, family already been there for a little while, and these two big blokes, proper men, real men. Uh, <laughs> men who know how to build things we're just sort of looking over and in my mind I'm thinking God, they're looking at me thinking God you're pathetic why is it letting the woman read the instructions he should be building this I, I then started to sort of pick bit things up and look like I was doing something and it was obviously very unconvincing because they came over and were like you look like you need a bit of help there <laughs> and then they put it up in about three minutes while I just <laughs> you got your you got the tent built so I, yeah I felt a bit emasculated by the whole thing but I was also glad that I didn't have to do it <laughs> and I was at the end having to dismantle it and try and fit it back in the bag and that didn't work it's just rolled up in the back of my uh, back of my car <laughs> it, was, it was quite a nice two days but I was kind of I, the whole thing, I, my wife got mad at me because I kept saying you spent 120 quid on a tent and then you spent how much on the campsite? We could have stayed in a hotel for two nights. But yeah, I did quite enjoy it in the end. It's not my favourite thing, but, you know, it was all right. Yeah, I, I grew a bit of stubble, started looking like a rugged outdoorsman. 
wasn't really in the wilderness, so you could actually hear the motorway from where we were. <laughs> so it didn't really feel like we're out in the country, but there's a bit of a change for me anyway. Um, I've got a question. So we were talking about um, borrowed um, cultures from America before. I just wanted to put to the group a question. What is your least favourite... Um, wait a second. What is your least favourite thing about America? <laughs> <laughs> That's an inherently yeah. negative question. Well, maybe your least favourite um, cultural offering that we've, that we've um, like, kind I'll, of borrowed I'll tell you from my America. least favourite Americanism, which... Uh, 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 there you go, upon. that'll do, yeah. My least favourite Americanism that every single British person I've ever met does, and, uh, and I have actively tried to stop doing, and now... I very annoyingly every time someone says it think to myself oh, god <laughs> I mean it's really stupid because a lot of Americanisms actually often they're Britishisms which they've picked up and we've forgotten that we ever did it's the thing where you go to a, a bar or a cafe and you, ask, and you say can I get a coffee can I get this can I get that or you're, you're ordering your uh, starter can I get the uh, soup of the day and then can I get uh, you know sausages and mash and for pudding can I get this it's just a horrible phrase stop using it Please may I have, please could I have, much nicer <laughs> English phrasing. That's the one I don't like. But it's far from watching Friends and American sitcoms. What about if you said, can you get that for me? Can you that's, say that? That's, that's weird for asking for something, isn't it? You know, it's just this abrupt. <laughs> and it, 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 it's making out that American people are rude. And then you, it's, it's, that, I always find that funny that Brit, they think British people are really polite. And then you go over there and they're like... So almost polite, sickeningly yeah. polite and you're just yeah. like oh god it makes me sick how nice they are <laughs> i think they've got a very false perception of how rich people are i've got a feeling that sunder might be too optimistic and nice to say <laughs> i'm quite you know i'm i'm quite pro-american and so like to want to keep like the sort of trump era politics out but like culturally you know that's uh that's the thing i am i am a bit sniffy about language and americanisms and so on. i used to i used to be it's a bit of a prejudice room we used to be very sort of sniffy about them at sport you know because they play their own <laughs> sports and you know call things the world championships yeah. so i remember you know when i was into those sorts of fanzines and things that were going on and it's just just ahead of the internet you know to show my age and you know when they got the world cup in 94 we're all laughing at them how can they have the world cup and so on actually they did it they did it perfectly well but we were very i think we were very snutty about them the sort of leftish sort of authentic football people of sort of the terraces in england and that you know now we're having world cups in qatar and so on but it's, it's quite funny to say the thing earlier about like America's story is very powerful. So I think they're annoying on the internet and they're annoying on the internet because they're in our internet. And so we're hearing their views of our stuff. So if we could just, just send us the films and so on and the, and the telly, but, um, um, you know, but there is an American story and it has got an origin. It's got a thing. So we went to see the musical Hamilton, which I absolutely love. And then we had the CD on in the car. And just prior to lockdown, it was on in the car all the time. And so all the kids, and they have got no other cultural reference points at all, but they're all absolutely word perfect on all of Hamilton. And it's on in the car to a sort of ridiculous, to a ridiculous degree. But it's an amazing, it's an amazing retelling of a national story, but you've actually got a national story to retell. So I'm quite, you know, a little bit um, jealous of that. I think, uh, in some ways. So, um, you know, we'll take, you know, dip in and out of the, of the thing. And they've had their moments in telly and film and so on, haven't they? I, I think pop music, we're much better at. Yeah. And I like, um, I would be a bit, I would be like, have that fight, but, but yeah. sort of telly, um, comedy, comedy, I'm happy to take their telly and stuff. Got a more concise national story of being a younger country, I guess. Um, Whereas I was a bit more messy. Yeah, it's got an origins. It's got an origins moment, and it's got a shape, and it's got a document. And so, so I think Hamilton just does this really incredibly well. I mean, the the creator he said, you know, it's a tale of America then, told about America now. But like, you take away the hip hop and the rap and the black cast or whatever, and it's actually a pretty straight version of the American Revolution. That's actually the meaning of the Republic. No, their national myth, origin myth annoys me a bit though, because it's all they they tend to they tend to it's depicted as like the the British, like they're an occupying sort of Nazi-ish force, yeah, yeah. rather than it being like almost a civil war, the revolution. But I'm not going to get into that too yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that, that plays it here to George III is a, is a pantomime yeah, yeah. villain. I, I then made the kids watch The Madness of King George, so I thought this is their way in now. They now know the American Revolution inside out from the perspective of Alexander Hamilton, but they've got no other bits of 
history at all. I mean, all. the king was like the best character in that play, <laughs> I did think. He was my favourite one. He had the best song. It was great. <laughs> I thought controversially, I think I saw it as going to drag you out of your life search. Controversially, there's a lot about Brexit in that in that in that musical actually. I thought. Um, yeah. Uh, if you want to look at it, if you want to look for it. Mm. Oh, don't we all? We, want, we all want to find Brexit where it isn't, <laughs> don't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I've mentioned Twitter so much in this whole recording that I'm starting to think that I spend too much time. Well, I know that I spend too much time on Twitter. Yeah, you definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> definitely yeah. do. Because, like you said about the Americans on Twitter, um, this is another thing, <laughs> another thing where some obnoxious Twitter, uh, American Twitter person just had a go at British things and I decided to get annoyed about it, like it mattered. And then reply to them, for like, and think. I think they said something like, um, "Oh, they were saying um, that." I think this thing about dryers. No, the, the first thing was the dryer thing. Yeah, there's a dryer thing, and, I, and there was all that. Ingl- no English people have dryers. Yeah, was was like, like, everyone's like, actually, I have a dryer. Or other people are like, actually, yeah. dryers ruin your clothes. Uh, and then there was someone. That same person made a comment, and and another what a guy replied to. Him, maybe he knew him. I don't know. And I think it was something to do with someone had tweeted about um, British food and uh, London being voted the best place to eat or something like that. Um, And they were saying that British have no cuisine. And then someone said, oh, what about, uh, mentioned some kind of Indian restaurant. And they were like, that's Indian food, dude. That's Indian food, not British food. And I was like, right, that is it. I'm getting involved in this. (laughs) Yeah, I spent a good five minutes explaining that uh, if, if... if curry in a British curry wasn't a, wasn't a British cuisine, then they couldn't claim Italian American cuisine. And then after that, I was yeah. just thinking, why are you spending any time in your life? <laughs> they didn't even reply to. It. I was thinking, oh, in a good twelve hours, they'll reply to that, and I'll get stuck back in. Didn't even give me a courtesy reply, which made it even more waste of my time. Right, why why do I care what yeah. this one person out of three hundred million is saying about British food? I don't know why I waste my time on it. Yeah, they can't. They can't. Oh, quite sympathetic. Quite sympathetic. You're getting stuck in there, but you do just want to say, "Look, come back when you've invented the cattle." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'd like to say I'd spend lost time on Twitter, but it's not going to happen. I always convince myself it's important for writing things, even when I'm not even writing anything. My my great contribution to the Twitter culture is that um, the, the last Friday in August is now hashtag positive Twitter day, which I came up with in uh, 2012 in the, you know, just before you get into the battles of the autumn. So about to do it again, I'm feeling a bit like, you know, oh, yeah. not enormously happy with Twitter, given my experience of it recently. But you stick by this, uh, this thing, positive Twitter day, where, you know, it's just a day for everyone to behave better and civilly and then some of us will do it like all the time and other people will do it for that day it's a day yeah have your day have your day of holiday pretend to be a nice person for a day well all right well should we should we should we finish there ben yeah that's, it seems yeah. like a natural end thanks a lot for coming on Brilliant discussion. Great. Very nice to talk to you both and look forward to hearing that. Yeah, we'll let you know when it's out. It should be about a week from now. Depends on how Matt, how fast Matt edits it. Yeah, <laughs> should be an easy one. Week, yeah. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much, Sunder. Listeners, Matt's left now. Uh, so I'd just like to say come back in the next two weeks for a new podcast and you can follow us on Twitter at UnravelPod and you can find us on The Great Unraveling on Facebook. Goodbye.